0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. This year, our virtual roundtable series has explored the implications of generative AI and natural language processing models on the legal industry. Our first roundtable covered the risks and benefits of generative AI, while the second address the AI technology landscape and implementation strategies. Now, in our third installment, our wonderful panel, Lori Allman, Chair of SciFarth, Anusha Gillespie, Chief Strategy Officer at Skillburst Interactive, Jennifer Leonard, Founder of Creative Lawyers and Adjunct Professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and Andrew Perlman, Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School focused on lawyer formation and attorney development in the age of artificial intelligence. Our panelists explored how law schools, law firms, and corporate legal departments can shape the lawyers of tomorrow. We discussed the importance of teaching empathy in law school, the impact of generative AI on task-based learning, training more experienced lawyers on new technology, as well as the incentives and training structures needed for all legal professionals in a different environment. Thank you to everyone who attended the live roundtable. And we appreciate all of you taking the time to listen today. Thank you, everybody, for joining. I hope everybody's having a great day and a great afternoon. I'm joined by a wonderful group of panelists here to talk about the challenges Generative AI poses for the development, formation, and training of lawyers. Let me introduce each one of them. I'll go counterclockwise from the screen as I see them. First off is Lori Allman, my partner and chair of Seifroth Shaw. Next is Andrew Perlman, who is a dean and professor of law at Suffolk University Law School, one of the most innovative law schools in the country. Next is Jen Leonard, who's the founder of Creative Lawyers, which is a consulting firm dedicated to helping innovation in law firms and legal departments, and is an adjunct professor at the University of Penn Law School, where previously she was chief innovation officer for UPenn Law School and Anusha Gillespie, who's the Chief Strategy Officer for Skillburst Interactive. Skillburst is an on-demand interactive training company designed for global legal market. Thanks to each of you for making the time to join and sharing your thoughts on this particular topic. We appreciate it. Let me start by sort of setting the stage a little bit. Uh, We've all at this point become focused on the impact of generative AI. I think as we've moved through the hype cycle, We've started to settle a little bit into what it is, what it does, what it doesn't do, and what it can do in the near future. To put a time frame on it, what we're really talking about in this conversation is sort of from now for the next couple of years, I think it's difficult to project out past that, but I also think that the impact of generative AI while being felt today will be felt more deeply in a couple of years. So with that, let me start, I guess I should also say the other part of stage setting. I should I should mention is that I think we're all of the opinion that generative AI will will take over some of the tasks that lawyers perform, whether it's enhancing research, whether it's creating first drafts, whether it's helping with document review, and that poses challenges in terms of formation for lawyers. So let me start with a very simple question, and I'll start, Lori, with you. What does it mean to you to be a great lawyer, and has that changed? With the advent of generative AI,
1: thanks, Steve, and uh, thanks, everyone. It's such a good question. I'm not sure it's such a simple question, but it, but it's a good one because I think there's so many facets to what it takes to be a really great lawyer. Obviously, being smart is sort of table stakes, but it's really the ability to think critically and strategically to see both the big picture and the smaller practical issues that that your client's facing. It's ability to solve problems through creativity and logical reasoning and discipline and and, and practicality. And so there's that that dimension. But then there's that's another dimension of the ability to elicit the right information to to have enough empathy and good listening skills and ability to relate to people to secure the information you really need, because if you're analyzing the wrong problem, you're not going to get the right answer. So you have to make sure you're really able to figure out what it is you're trying to answer in the first place. Then you know, once you get your answer, you have to have that persuasive dimension. You need to be able to, again, earn trust, read signals, deal with you know, resistance to what you're trying to say, be your client, a judge, uh, uh, somebody on the other side of a deal. You have to be able to advocate with credibility. And then there's the other dimension. You have to be able to work as a team. You have to be able to handle frustration. You need grit. You need resilience. So for the second part of your question, I don't think the demand for those characteristics changes at all with the advent of AI, frankly. But I do think there are two implications of AI when it comes to what I just described. One, I don't know that we've always looked for lawyers with those skills, even though that is what it takes. A lot of times we've looked at, do you have the highest ranked law school and the best possible grades and then sort of use that as a proxy for all these other things that actually are probably better predictors of whether you'll succeed as a lawyer. Two, how we've traditionally developed those skills as lawyers is probably subject to radical change because of the advent of AI. So fundamentally, what it means to be a great lawyer, I don't think changes much at all, but they're very human skills. And so luckily, you know, those human skills are still very much in demand. But how we apply them in this new context
0: may be very different. Reactions from the rest of the panelists. Do you agree? Disagree?
2: I agree with almost everything that Lori just said, including that that is not a simple question at all, Steve. So you know, yeah. we could have taken up the whole hour on the answer to that question of what makes a great lawyer. And the only nuance that I would add is I think there are lots of ways to be a great lawyer, that all of the skills, very few lawyers have all of the skills. And there are lots of ways to be great in, in different ways. And I think that will continue to be true. So I think all of the traits, all of the skills that lawyers have had to develop in the past are going to continue to be important. They're going to be important in different ways and perhaps in a different balance. But I do think some of the core traits that we look for in great lawyers will still be applicable.
3: I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Laurie and Dean Perlman have said. And I just want to I underline and wrote down the word empathy, which Laurie discussed in her answer. And I think it's a really critical uh, skill and mindset to be teaching our law students from the very first day of law school. In my personal opinion, we have a tendency to be very lawyer-centric in the way that we think about practicing law, delivering legal services. And frequently in the classes that I'm involved with, we start with this very question, why do lawyers exist? And the answers at the beginning of the conversation are very much about the tasks that we do. We exist to write briefs and to draft memos and to argue in court. And it takes a little while for us to actually get to the word client or self-represented litigant or member of the public. So I think that this is a huge moment of opportunity for us to really be amplifying the need for us to empathize with the people that we're serving, whether those are our corporate clients or they're people, most of whom are trying to navigate the systems that we've created for ourselves without us. So these human skills that we're talking about, I think in this moment of technological advancement, our humanity is what will actually set us apart and help us add value to the world around us.
4: Yeah, I think all has been said, uh, I have more of a question, a follow-up question If all of the competencies of a great lawyer remain the same, but you had mentioned that the development of lawyers will experience radical transformation. So why radical transformation and development if the competencies remain the same?
3: So in part,
1: we haven't emphasized enough some of the things that I've described, as Jen said, we should be thinking of our jobs in my mind about, you know, we're problem solvers and how do you solve a problem? If you think about how you solve a problem in your personal life, it's listening, trying to understand, trying to empathize, trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And so this is probably, should be greater emphasis on that than we've seen. And that's a good thing, and it's a moment in time to do this. But on sort of, I'll take an example of learning, learning the nuances of privilege if you're a litigator. The way we've traditionally used it is we've sort of created this endless supply of hypotheticals by giving you a bazillion documents to review and asked you over and over to decide if something was privileged and what privilege there was or say rules of evidence, things like that. This endless supply of hypotheticals has come in the form of billable work and at least in the law firm context and you learn a lot through repetition, you know, any skill you try to learn, it's, it's like you try to learn how to make a souffle, you watch a YouTube video, you don't really know how to make a souffle, you know how to make a souffle when you try to cook it and it falls and you mess it up and you realize you're forgotten ingredient and over time, you learn by doing so some of that repetition may go away, I think, and you know, if you want to get that Malcolm Gladwell sort of 10,000 hours. If we've removed the need to review those bazillion documents, we've got to find another way to teach, you, get you the repetition, the practical application, the trial and error that maybe is no longer baked into some of those repetitive tasks. That's at least my thinking.
0: Right. So right. Let, let's start at the beginning with uh, law schools, and I'll start with Dean Perlman. Dean, has the purpose of law schools changed? How does generative AI affect the methodology by which you want to tract and train? aspiring lawyers?
2: So the purpose of law schools has not changed. The purpose is still to prepare students for the practice of law. The way we go about that, I think, is going to evolve. And the skills that we teach, I think, in addition to the ones that we were just talking about, there will be new skills, new competencies that we expect future lawyers to have. So the answer to your question, Steve, is that I think Law schools need to do a lot of what we have always done. But then in addition to that, teach students what I like to call a new kind of issue spotting. So historically, we have taught students to spot a variety of subject matter issues like contracts and property and torts. And when you see a fact pattern and you're talking with a client, you can identify the kinds of issues that the client has. What I think law schools are going to have to do going forward is teach students how to spot, how to deliver legal services in new ways so that when they're out in practice and they are encountering a particular kind of service, that the issue that they're spotting is I can deliver that service in a better, faster and cheaper way using innovation and technology. And I know that because I was exposed to that in law school. Not that they necessarily are going to be using the same innovative methods or the same technology, but the concept will be there. And so what I think law schools will necessarily need to teach students going forward is how to think differently about legal services delivery, not instead of all of the traditional skills that we have taught, but in addition. I think that that's going to be an imperative. I think a number of law schools are already doing it. Certainly, we're doing it at Suffolk, and we have been doing that for a number of years. And I think that's only going to increase in importance.
0: Jen, let me pick up on something you said, which is the need to teach empathy. It's been a long time since I've been in law school, but I don't recall that being one of the courses <laughs> I, <laughs> I took. <laughs> How does one do that? I don't disagree with your point, by the way.
3: <laughs> sure. So how do, we, how do we try to gain the perspective of the people that we're serving? And I, I think, you know, I've only had the ability to deploy this in the classes where I've been involved, but one class that I teach and co-teach with others from the School of Design and from Wharton is a design thinking class. And in that class, we really begin by doing a whole series of activities, including empathy interviews field observation so to make it more concrete last semester we spent time in the philadelphia municipal court which is supposed to be the people's court where people can represent themselves in matters under twelve thousand dollars in dispute but the reality is that most of the people on the plaintiff side of the v have lawyers and law firms and most of the people on the defense side of the v do not and the outcomes reflect that disparity. So we had students go in and interview the self-represented litigants, interview attorneys from community legal services, interview the judges and their court staff to understand what their experience actually is like, and then to spend time actually walking through the courthouse to see how easy it is to navigate and to sit in the back of the courtroom instead of the front of the courtroom where they might do an oral argument and see what it feels like to not necessarily be part of the fraternity of lawyers in the front of the courtroom and what that makes you feel like as somebody trying to navigate the system on their own. So I've learned a lot from my colleagues in other disciplines that have been doing this much longer I think than lawyers have. And I think maybe to add to Dean Perlman's answer a direction the sort of legal education realm has already been moving in, I think, will be accelerated, which is the integration of more multidisciplinary opportunities in law school to bring in frameworks and perspectives from fields that have either been forced to change, like the healthcare industry, or who are actively focused on change as a discipline, like business. And so I think there are a lot of different trends in those places that we can bring into our classrooms and not have to try to reinvent the wheel ourselves, which is something I think lawyers tend to try to do when there are easier ways to do that.
0: How do you use the capabilities of Genai as a teaching tool? I know every professor probably does it a little bit differently, but as you're, I'm sort of picking up on Laurie's point about the elimination of sort of the tasks, task-based learning environment, which is more applicable to practice than it is to law schools, I think, but nevertheless is applicable to law schools. As Gen AI begins to take over some of the tasks lawyers are performing, how do you approach its use as a tool, as a teaching aid? I think
2: from a law school perspective, you want to see professors adopting lots of different approaches. And I think for some professors, it won't play a role at all. And they will continue to teach in traditional ways. Maybe it's a negotiation class and you're going to have a lot of one-on-one conversations and you're not going to deploy Gen AI in, in that kind of class as you would in a different kind of class. So, for example, in our legal research in writing course. This year, faculty are incorporating a couple of new Gen AI-related assignments. One is in the context of legal research, and another one is related to editing a document. So students are going to be given a ChatGPT revision exercise, where they use ChatGPT to generate a legal memorandum on a subject that they've already researched and know something about, and then they have to edit the document. And that's a valuable skill, first of all, because editing is incredibly important and probably is going to become even more so with Gen AI. But also it's going to be illuminating because it will teach students what the tools can do and even more importantly, what they are not able to do. So I think that's an example of where we're already bringing it into the first year of law school. And then upper level courses, again, will treat it differently for our traditional papers. I think that there will be a lot of faculty, and I know some are already adopting this philosophy, of telling students, use it as much as you want. As long as the paper is well thought out, well expressed, carefully researched, that's what matters. How you use the Gen AI tool is up to you. And I think that students are going to have to grapple with it just as they will have to grapple with it as professionals. So hiding those tools from the students is not going to do any good. So I, I think there are going to be a lot of different approaches to how to use Gen AI in the classroom. But one thing is clear, we're going to have to introduce it in the classroom.
0: Jen, how are you seeing it used at Penn? I've
3: seen it. On both sides of the classroom, I guess, as somebody sort of designing activities for law students, I have found it to be extremely helpful as an ideation partner in thinking through what might be a more interesting way to teach a lesson. I certainly have my own biases and exercises that I enjoy delivering, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best way to do it. And the earlier version of ChatGPT was not particularly creative. And the later iterations of it are actually extremely helpful. And if I ask it to generate 20 different ideas for running a two-hour exercise that teaches empathy interviewing techniques or ways to ideate or prototype a design, maybe half of those are really terrible ideas. And half of them maybe have a kernel of potential there that I can build upon. And I think We'll talk a lot today about lawyer development, but I think the good news is that for experienced lawyers and experienced professionals in any realm, this is just a turbocharger for everything that you're already able to do because you can apply your expertise and see where the limitations are. But on the other role in the classroom as a student, I get the opportunity to teach a class specifically on generative technologies with Bridget McCormick and Dean Perlman was kind enough to join us for uh, a demo and discussion about these issues. But they are excited to test these tools. And it's a really interesting time to be a law student, I think, because for our entire lives, the people who are teaching us were the experts and knew pretty much everything there was to know about a subject. And now we know very little and we have the opportunity to all learn together. And one example is I had an idea in mind, I still believe this, that there are real opportunities to strengthen formation through the use of generative AI as a coach and a tutor but we worked together to test this because a theory I had was that instead of just giving one else a sample model exam from the year before and asking them to sort of self-educate and figure out what works well about that and replicate it, we could use uh, retrieval augmented generation and upload some sample exams and have the students practice and get feedback. Again, I was biased in thinking that was a great idea, But we actually worked together to test it, and the students found that one platform worked really, really well in that way, and another was actually terrible. But having us all work together and come together and figure it out was both illuminating and also, I think, really fun for everybody involved, including me.
0: I want to keep coming back a little bit to the point Lori made because it fascinates me, this question about the task-based training whether it's in law school or whether it's in the the practice, because that's certainly how I was trained and developed as a lawyer. It was an apprentice structure, frankly, where I went and I looked at documents and I wrote deposition outlines and I wrote briefs. And that's how I learned to manipulate facts and how I learned to not manipulate facts. (laughs) Lawyers don't manipulate facts.
1: Here at Cyphars, we don't do that. We
0: don't do that synthesize facts and analyze fact patterns and apply them to the law. A lot of that is going to be done. You know, I know Dean Perman, you know, the editing capabilities are enhanced, but a lot of that is going to be done by, by Gen AI. We want people to fill these characteristics that Lori and, and all of you to find, how do we get them there? If we don't have this volume of work, the volume of hypotheticals that we, we get a new let's, let's, Give you a chance to jump in here because this is your business.
4: Sure. So I think this is where new training and development, Lori, to your point and your answer to my question at the beginning, is going to come in. Is we're going to have to get a lot smarter in the way that we're training lawyers. I think probably the amount of task-based work given to lawyers now, in the name of training, might be too much. So this might actually help us kind of right fit the amount of purposeful training that we deliver versus learning through tasks and billable work. I've already seen some simulators. So a a moot court simulator that's trained on SCOTUS decisions, a feedback simulation um, that people can use to deliver feedback to a simulated associate. uh, And then uh, you're kind of scored on your ability to provide that feedback. So I think we're getting smarter in the tools that we're developing. And then to your point, we're going to have to create all of the hypotheticals versus just kind of have them at our disposal. So for us in our business, um, in in e-learning and development, um, it's an exciting time because I think that there's historically been an underinvestment in leadership and development of lawyers. But that's been because there's been this volume of work that has trained them.
0: Lori, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think and this is coming right in on the the issue is you do need something more than the I'm going to talk at you and hope very much that you learned. it, And um, it's instead an interactive exchange and a lot of legal education has been I'm talking at you. I mean, I, the law school entire model of going to talk at you for three months you'll get a chance to talk about it some and then I'll test you once and you'll find out whether you've completely misunderstood the last three months. You know, I, I remember not liking that part of law school very much. And I think that's really evolved and you see so much more interaction and dialogue now at the law school level. And it, that, it probably also applies, you know, in, in law firms very much is we can't just talk at people and expect them to learn. We have to give them the opportunity to interact and engage and try and fail and modify and learn and then fail again. And so The more we can develop alternative ways to practice, the better. But I really think it's doable, even in this apprentice setting that you see in in lawyer development, because, you know, Steve, we, we had chatted about this one time. I never went to medical school to state the obvious, but I'm sure neurosurgeons don't practice on real people while they're doing surgery, like they, they must find other ways to practice before they're actually doing brain surgery, right? And so there's ways to teach a very practical skill that requires a lot of learning and development and trial and error before you're in the real life setting. So I think law can probably do that too. We don't have to make people learn on real clients, but they can learn at the same time that they're practicing law.
2: And just to build on that, I, I remember when I started off, and Lori had referenced the discovery process. And certainly, when I graduated from law school and got put in a an office, going page by physical page through documents, looking for what was relevant and privilege and subject to the work product doctrine, it was painful. One of the reasons I think I went into academia instead of sticking it out as a litigator. But the you know the idea was e discovery came along and took a lot of that work away. But yet, somehow, litigators still understand discovery, even though there's a lot of automation to the process. I think Gen AI may have a similar effect, that there are certain tasks, as we've been talking about them, the 50-state survey, the first draft of a brief or a memo that lawyers won't have to do anymore. And you know what? Good riddance. (laughs) I think that's probably a better use. There's a better use of lawyers' time. And so maybe a first draft will be created by Gen AI. Lawyers are still going to have to apply careful analysis, synthesis of facts, not manipulation, uh, and, and, and really making those documents as powerful as they can possibly be. So it's going to shift a little bit about what lawyers do. I don't think it's necessarily going to cause a great atrophying of lawyers' uh, abilities or at least those skills that we most highly value.
3: And if I could just jump in, I, I completely agree with everything Dean Proman and Lori just said. And I would add that it requires the institutions that really want to make a strategic advantage for their business or for their educational environment right now. It's incumbent on them to really be intentional about what happens next because. I do hear a fair amount of magical thinking happening across the profession of, um, well, this is fantastic because now first-year lawyers can do the things that they came to law school to do, but I don't know any law firm on earth that is going to let a first-year associate second chair a trial or take a deposition in year one. And so while I'm very optimistic that we won't have to have young lawyers spend three or four years doing the kinds of work that we did when we came into the profession, I think that the schools that will take advantage of this moment will be the ones that recognize that in the upper levels in particular, there are real opportunities to add in more skills-based development that will prepare their graduates to hit the ground running faster than maybe schools that aren't thinking about these things at all and are just sort of hoping that this happens In the way that they think it might happen. So I think that there are real strategic advantages. And as Lori mentioned, I think for leaders and these organizations, a lot of this, again, is about the human element of building a vision that people want to follow and recognizing that right now is a very messy moment that will make us all very uncomfortable because we're lawyers and we like precision and perfection and being experts. And none of us is an expert right now. But Knowing that our leadership expects us to pilot things, experiment, and learn as a result is a huge step in the right direction toward people feeling less fearful. And I think the organizations that are permeated with fear are the ones that will lose out in the end because they won't take any risks and they won't learn much of anything. But you're doing all of that in environments that are very tricky to pilot programs within. So I think that's where Anusha's work really is so important in helping develop this connectivity between employers and law schools and sort of bridge that gap between education and practice.
1: Yeah. And, it, you know, it's such a messy moment and it's uncomfortable, but it's also, there's sort of a great equalizer happening right now because nobody's good at this. So anybody can be good at it in the future. And so it gives you that opportunity to say, let's seize the moment. And really move to the front and the forefront of, of either legal education, lawyer training, practice of law. So if you look at it with that other side of the coin in mind, it's a pretty exciting time, I think.
2: Yeah. On that point, this is a really great opportunity for law students, people. There's a lot of hand wringing. What is this going to mean for future lawyers and employment opportunities? I think the employment opportunities are fantastic. If you think about the way we have done it historically, law firms would hire newly licensed lawyers and train them up because they weren't able to do much. And that was a big investment for a law firm. But so many law firms right now are struggling to figure out what to make of Gen AI. They are going to really want a next generation of lawyers who know how to use these tools to their advantage and are going to make them better lawyers than perhaps some of the more senior lawyers who are going to struggle with using these tools. So it in some ways, there's an opportunity to flip the traditional training narrative. <laughs> That's right. so it, it used to be the employers who would go and have to train the newly licensed lawyers. Now, if you're learning these skills in law school and the law firms value it or the legal employers value it but don't know how to do it yet, you could be teaching people at your right. first place of employment. So I, I, I actually think there's a really great potential for law students today to take these skills and run with them.
3: Yeah, I think it's true on the other side of the equation too. I think there's a huge opportunity for employers to distinguish themselves for students who are comparing where they'd like to start their career. If I were a rising 2L interviewing with a host of different firms and I asked a firm about what they're thinking about Gen AI and they're not thinking anything, that would alarm me. (laughs) Somebody (laughs) who is entrusting them with my career. And I think the other exciting thing about this moment, and I think Dean Perlman, I've heard you talk about this before, is that the very early studies are showing that generative AI can help support people who are less naturally inclined to be strong writers from the outset. And I think there are huge benefits across the board there to have students. I was certainly one of these students where brief writing, memo writing was not my strongest skill set. I really enjoyed the problem-solving aspect of being a lawyer. And maybe there's an equalizing effect there where we have more students coming out of law school who can contribute more diverse skills than the ones that Laurie mentioned at the beginning have traditionally been like the hallmark of success, being on law review or having a clerkship or being a fantastic legal writer. So I think that's really exciting as well.
2: Yeah. And also to this point might be attractive to a group of people who might not otherwise have thought about law school because they were a little put off by, the writing nature of it, that maybe that wasn't their natural strength. And to your great point, Jen, they're going to be great lawyers because they have so many other wonderful skills to bring from problem solving and good judgment, good communication skills in other respects. And we've lost out on that talent in the legal profession. But now it won't be quite as off-putting if you have these new tools where some aspects that we've historically prized are not as valued anymore. So it could be a net positive for the legal profession in a lot of respects that we don't currently anticipate.
1: One other piece of that maybe, you know, I talked about the endless supply of hypotheticals. Well, maybe clients aren't willing to pay you now to do manually what could be done by AI for a routine, repetitive task. But. Speaking of endless supply, there's an endless supply of people who are not getting legal resources at all, who are underrepresented, under-resourced. And if you take that, if we say, hey, okay, we, so people still need to practice taking depositions. We just think that's something you just need to do in real life. Well, gosh, there's a whole huge array of people who need our legal services. So maybe this is great for the legal profession, too, as we start helping many more people who need our help. Um, and that's how we get some of that training and capability.
0: Let me flip the question a little bit, because as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm also thinking about the impact on the more experienced lawyers. You know, We've been focused a lot on law students and less experienced lawyers. We're looking at the more experienced lawyers now to do different things in terms of their ability to develop and train younger lawyers, but also to learn how to use the tools themselves. Do our expectations of experienced lawyers change? And if so, how do we support that change?
3: I mean, I would, if I were an experienced lawyer, putting aside the business model challenges, which is a huge thing to set aside, but I would be so excited right now because as we talked about, I mean, I think at least sitting here in December 2023, the group that probably benefits the most are experienced experts who can use these technologies as a thought partner. As an efficiency provider, being able to generate first drafts of things that maybe before you had to work with a, an associate who had no experience um, doing that work, maybe you can do it much more quickly. So I think for experienced lawyers, I don't know that the expectation will change other than to be more efficient, which will add pressure that already exists on lawyers to be faster. But I think in this case, unlike the last 20 years or so, there are actually tools to help experienced lawyers respond to that pressure.
0: I agree with you in terms of the use of the tools, but are we going to expect something different from experienced lawyers in terms of their development of younger lawyers They can no longer default to go look at these boxes of documents, go read these depositions and and write briefs to develop the skill sets we need? I would anticipate that we're going to be putting more demands on experienced lawyers to help develop traits like empathy and judgment and analysis, and it's going to require more effort than perhaps it has before.
1: I agree with you, Steve, that sometimes our incentives in the way the pricing structure and, the, and what have you works within at least private practice, the incentives can be about, you know, just get as much work done as you can possibly do and, and generate revenue. And maybe that's part of the reason I think lawyers tend to be pretty lousy at feedback and instruction at the senior level but that ability to instruct and that's a concept others have developed but that ability to instruct right now human to human human to machine becomes so paramount in this moment and so the hope would be that this frees up senior lawyers to work at the top of their license um, and frees up some of that time which ought to be channeled in instruction and training and mentoring and sponsorship because they, that you don't develop judgment overnight. You just don't. It's a constant evolution from probably the day you first you walk out of law school to the day you retire. And I think it's just going to be more incumbent on senior lawyers to help more junior lawyers grow and learn in this time of change. But we're not, even, we're not really even sure how to teach because we're not, they're not going to learn the way we learned but time and effort and empathy and focus is is almost always the solution.
4: I'm not sure that senior lawyers are going to be freed up uh, as quickly as we might think. I think that the difference between kind of the e-discovery evolution and what we have now is we went from automation to innovation, where there's a lot more we can do across data sets and creating new value within firms in ways that we now have increasingly capable systems that can do that, that it just, it wouldn't have been economically feasible to tackle these kinds of projects and problems before that now we can. And because we can, we kind of have to, but that's not easy. That's messy and complicated. And so some of these projects might take more senior partner, senior lawyer time, because they're the ones who know what the output needs to be. And so that might create more work on their plate. So then how do you free them up to provide the feedback and empathy and all of the human and judgment skills to the more junior lawyers? I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that they're going to need to be part of that because part of what we're hearing across firms is that partners are saying they don't know how to be good associates. So You can unpack that in a lot of different ways. Um, but the only solution to that is our partners, like that that, and training. So they're not coming in exactly knowing exactly how to be good ex- associates. So we need to solve for that through human interaction. And I'll just share an anecdote from one of Jordan Furlong's recent articles uh, where he opened it up uh, explaining that uh, there was a associate who needed feedback. From a partner or more information and contacts a kind of assignment was dropped on the associates desk and they needed more contacts for the assignment. They were trying to get the partner's attention, trying to get more information. Couldn't get it. So they created an instance of chat and asked chat TPT um, for feedback on the assignment and more contacts and what clients want, because that was available 24 7 and readily available. So. How do you then, um, if technology is being wedged more between partners and associates and vice versa, a partner might enjoy an on-demand 24-7 piece of technology that doesn't talk back (laughs) more than an associate, Um, and so if those technologies are getting wedged between the partner and associate relationship, but the associates need partner mentorship maybe more than ever, that's kind of a lot baked in that we need to, to solve for.
3: And maybe if I could just add one thing to shift to another part of the profession is, you know, we're thinking, I think, about a leveraged business model where we have lots of associates supporting a smaller number of partners. But I see real benefits for experienced lawyers in other parts of the profession, like on plaintiff side, small and solo practitioners, businesses that are virtually impossible to run these days because of the dynamics in the environment. If I were a, a solo practitioner, if I were in a boutique firm, if I were on the plaintiff side, I would be thinking in every possible way about how to leverage these technologies to level the playing field so that I can advance more claims. And then to pick up on the good points that everybody else has made about the civil justice crisis. I think one mindset in law school that we should be integrating more fully is entrepreneurial mindset and systems thinking. I think many law students are not aware that 92% of American civil legal needs go unmet, and that's complete market dysfunction. And now we have technology that can really amplify what we do in ways that have benefits in the access to justice space, but also in new markets that I think could emerge as a result of this technology. But it requires us, again, to be intentional about introducing these concepts to law students so they actually know about the opportunities.
0: I'm curious, I want to follow up on the point, Anusha, that you made about the technology being a further wedge between partners and associates. How do we avoid that happening?
4: Very good question. <laughs> I do not have Well, an you raised
0: the problem. And you, <laughs> don't, don't raise a problem without having a solution.
4: I know that's what we're in the messy phase right now where we're at least being able to identify and look forward to some of the problems. And I guess the further compounded problem is if partner time is even more taxed, then how do you solve for that um, when that's the most important mentor and voice to a young associate? So I'm sorry, I have not figured that one out quite yet
2: certainly not a complete answer and it might not even be the right answer. It might not play out this way is what I was alluding to earlier, which is if law students become expert at using Gen AI in the delivery of legal services and experienced lawyers are less so, then the idea is that what the, the technology won't come between the senior lawyer and the junior lawyer. Other the junior lawyer will be the way in which a senior lawyer is best able to leverage these technologies. So I think that there is a model here where senior lawyers and a lot of law firms are just not going to want to train up on the latest tools and they're going to need people who are able to do it more effectively than they can. So it actually rather than drawing. Junior and senior lawyers apart might actually bring them together in an interesting way that we've never experienced before. At least it's a plausible scenario.
1: Yeah, and I think sort of building on that, you know, you, I agree fully. You're never going to bring along every senior lawyer has been doing something one way for thirty years and is no longer not interested in making a radical change. But there's also a a lot to be gained if you can get people to think about this moment in time. This is not just a fancy search engine. We have Lexus and Westlaw already, right? And that's not what this is. But this is about a fundamental shift in the delivery of legal services. And you ought to be thinking about it from the perspective of the high vantage point where you operate, not thinking about how the first drafts and the discovery process can necessarily be done more efficiently, but how can you really address your clients' unmet needs through this? And if you get lawyers, partners, or senior members of the government or the judiciary thinking about this in a more sophisticated way and really thinking about what this AI can actually do, you know, then you maybe grab their attention. Because if, if, if I think of it as just something that substitutes for second year tasks, I am less interested in it because I wasn't doing that anyway. So I don't even remember how to do it. <laughs> but if I think it's about my client's current high level board level problems, it's about how the judiciary could operate differently. Think about it at that strata. Maybe you really capture the senior partner's attention.
3: And if I could build on something that Dean Perlman started to think about is the real opportunities here to fill in for a lot of the gaps in law student experience, in junior lawyer experience. I don't think that if Gen AI had never come on the scene, that that law firm partners and law professors would magically have a lot more time to be (laughs) learning how to be mentors, learning how to give more formative feedback. So now we're operating in a world where we can fill in a lot of those gaps, I think, as the tools become more sophisticated so that the associates or the the law students, many of whom really don't want to bother busy people who are experts with questions that they don't know, will then be able to engage with experts around the higher order thinking involved in a representation or in a legal concept that they're grappling with in class, And I think that there are a host of well-being and DE&I benefits here as well, where the anxiety, I I know I had this experience as a 1L. My anxiety, because of that training model that Lori talked about, was through the roof to the point where I wasn't able to actually function well in taking an exam because there was so much writing on it and such a vacuum of feedback. And so I would love to see a world where a student can sit down with an AI and actually get formative feedback and see whether they're improving and then bring those questions to their professors and feel better supported in that environment.
0: Great. That's a great point. Thanks, Jen. Let me follow up on something Dean Perlman has mentioned a couple of times, which is the training of more senior experienced lawyers in the use of AI through the use of law students or, or recent graduates. I think one of the challenges, and and Lori sort of hit on this point, she talked about the ability to instruct. One of the ways in which we maximize use of generative AI for the benefit of our clients is to effectively understand how it's our co-pilot, how it's our legal assistant, how we can work with it. My question is, how do we train the more experienced lawyers to accept that technology, recognizing that there will be some who will just still don't want to turn on their computers? Apart from having a generation of people coming in who are facile with these technologies, how do we create incentives and training structures to get people to really get their hands involved in this and really begin to understand how this can benefit our clients?
2: I don't think we need to do anything. I think the market is going to fix that problem and it already started, It has already begun. Uh, some of you may have seen for just as one example among many, the letter that the general counsel for Ford Motor sent to his outside counsel partners saying, I'd like for you to report to me on the ways in which you're using AI and generative AI to break down the cost of legal services for us as your client. I think clients are going to apply the pressure to those lawyers who are reluctant to deliver their services in new ways. So I think that this is going to be a problem that takes care of itself because before too long, It will just be a given that lawyers use these tools rather than questioning, oh, is it is it competence to you that is it going to hallucinate? The point is going to be it will be incompetence not to use these tools. And that's not going to happen within the next two years. But within the next 10, it wouldn't surprise me.
4: I'll add that uh, we have a generative AI fundamentals for law firms on demand training series that we had a consortium of 11 large law firms kind of sign on to help us figure out who's the right audience, what are the right topics and sequencing. Interestingly, in that kind of initial survey we launched with them, the feedback was that this training is for everyone in the law firm, which was a bit of a surprise to us because we thought, okay, definitely associates, um, maybe all lawyers, but everyone in the law firm on the staff side too. This is an imperative. All partners, some of these firms are mandating the training within the firm, uh, not optional. So I think we're already seeing firms coming along. And yes, the client pressure as well. We uh, have not worked with legal departments on Gen AI training, but we've had multiple law firms asking about client events to train them because they're getting pressure from their legal department clients because they don't have the resources to really wrangle and get their arms around the area. So they're already putting pressure on the law firms to train them in this area. So I agree that the market's already kind of adjusting. And in a way that law firms historically maybe haven't kind of jumped on technology bandwagons, this one's already kind of left the station.
3: I would just add that I agree that the market will take care of this, and I think it will happen faster than maybe we expect it to. But I also think this goes back to this issue of intentionality, because I think that law schools that aren't intentional right now will miss the boat. Uh, when it comes to this market shift that I think many are not expecting to happen, maybe aren't even aware of the currents around them. And Steve, you, you mentioned junior lawyers being more facile with these technologies, but I think it also requires the intentional instruction of the technology to the students because in my experience, and I'd be curious to hear Anusha's and Dean Perlman's, The students are all over the map, just like everybody else is, with respect to how comfortable they are with the technologies, how aware they are of the technologies, how much they want to use them. I have students that are really not interested at all in using generative AI because they came to law school to do things a certain way, and that's not how they wanted to do them. So if the market is going to take care of this, then I think law schools need to help their entire faculty and student community understand that. And work together to figure out where it's appropriate to integrate the, the technology into their classes. And I think to Anusha's great point, I think this is a moment and the window's closing quickly where law firms can co-design with their corporate clients what the future looks like here. Because most general counsel I talk to are having the same reaction that Dean is talking about, which is I, I am not going to pay in a couple of years X number of dollars per hour for somebody to do this. But I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. So for the firms that have affirmative outreach to their clients who are also trying to figure this out, I think there are huge benefits there in the long term.
2: Just to piggyback on what Jen said, uh, she's absolutely right. There's this myth of the digital native that just because someone is really good with emojis, that somehow they're going to be good with Gen <laughs> AI. <laughs> One thing has nothing
1: to do with the other. So you're saying we um, have a chance still. <laughs>
2: yeah. And, and also, a really good point that not every student really is embracing this. I've, I've got three college age children. None of them are as fascinated by Gen AI as I am. In fact, a couple of them actively (laughs) resist it and want to have nothing to do with it. And so I get that. It's not just because you are younger, you necessarily embrace it. So I do think law schools not only have an opportunity, but an obligation to help students understand the importance of learning these new tools that are going to be available to them and that they will be expected to use, just as we have long taught the transition from going to from shepherds and doing the pocket parts in the back of the book to learning how to do that online. We're going to have to teach students how to generate content and information and legal documents using these new tools as well. It's just going to become table stakes.
3: And if I could add to, to Dean Perlman's point, one dynamic I've seen with my students, too, which I found interesting is They're very frustrated when it doesn't work well the first time. And I think it's because they're used to much more advanced technology than we were when we were in that era. And so in our class, a lot of our work was helping them understand that they need to train the models, that they need to push them and reprompt, because they would come back to class and say, this didn't work and here were all the flaws and this is why we can never use this technology to do X. So I think there's education across the board about how to actually engage with the the LLMs.
2: I see that all the time, including among lawyers who say, well, this is junk. It can't do anything for legal services because look what I asked and look at what I got as a result. Uh, so people are really quite uninformed about how the technology works.
1: And, and I think it's even, you know, maybe even bigger than that, too, in the sense that, you know we are a profession that is conservative i don't mean politically but just sort of conservative we rely on precedent everything we do we do it because we think someone did it before and we try to tie it to the past always we don't like change we're wired to think about everything that could go wrong that's sort of our job is to, to prob, you know spot all the risks and so you're, you're trying to get this whole entire profession to have a mindset of let's try things and it's okay if we fail. It's okay if it doesn't work and let's think about the future and let's think about things that never happened before. You know, that's a real fundamental mindset shift that would probably incumbent on all of us to collectively try to influence.
0: I think that's right. In the last couple of minutes we've got, we we got one question in advance that I'll pose to the group. And in essence, the question is, and Anusha sort of hit on this when she talked about simulations in Jordan Furlong's article, which is the development of generative AI to become an actual substitute for, teach- for human teachers, to actually, you actually learn from a training tool. What's your reaction to that? And do you see the technology going in that direction? And if so, how do you think that would be received either in law schools or in a corporate or law firm environment?
2: So, yes, it's absolutely going in that direction, and there are already some tools available, just as Salman Khan of Khan Academy and Khan Migo, which is deploying uh, Gen AI for helping students learn on their own. I think that's going to accelerate. But I think the short answer to your question is that it's going to depend. I think people learn in different ways. Some people will learn more and learn more quickly using these tools. Some will need to learn in the old fashioned way, will need human involvement and also may vary depending on the subject matter. So I think we're going to see an increasingly diverse array of approaches to student learning which makes education and also an exciting field aside from the legal services industry education itself is going to go through a remarkable transformation where we have to think new ways about uh, about how students learn so um, i think it's going to be all of the above and it's not going to be a single answer
4: Jen used the phrase diverse skills earlier, and I think that's right. There's a, there's a lot of skills that people need now. And so how do we right fit the right tool and learning mechanism to that skill? If you're teaching transactions and how to do a merger and acquisition document, then that's going to be different than empathy and which one's better suited for a tool. So I think we have to be really careful about what are the competencies that we expect and then what's the right learning mechanism, given that people learn in different ways, but what's the appropriate one for that specific skill or competency?
3: I would just add to um, everything everybody has said, including Dean Perlman's remark, that education is about to go through a transformative period we've never experienced before. And education has been creaky and hard to scale for a very long time and not suited to its original purpose anymore, I think, in lots of ways. And part of that is because there is very little ability to get customized feedback from some of the platforms that we have. And now we are entering an era where we will have the ability to do that. I don't think the humans will go away, but I think I have a bias as somebody who lives in Philadelphia, Dean Perlman's in Boston. We can't throw a rock around here without hitting a law school, but there are lots of places in the United States where they are in legal education deserts and nobody has access to an education or a lawyer as a result. And so I think that not the next two years, but maybe 10 years from now, we're thinking about legal education differently in a way that brings more people into the profession and educates more people at scale
1: yeah i think that's right i mean we talked about lawyers sort of fundamentally being about solving problems well ai is only really useful when it's solving a problem that you have also where something's working great in terms of one-on-one relationships and mentorships ai is not going to substitute that because that's working great but there's so much that isn't working great where ai can really step in and fill a gap and i think that's where it will be additive to the learning that's already happening
0: last question for all of you whether you're looking for new Members of the firm, whether you're working with a corporate legal department or whether you've got a law school, we talked about the characteristics of being a great lawyer not changing. But for people that you're looking to admit to law school or to hire as a first-year associate, do you see those characteristics changing over the next few years? Are you looking for different things, Laura? You talked a little bit about how you need to move away from looking at just grades in law school as a proxy for these things. Talk a little bit more about how you how you achieve that.
1: Yeah, I, I think even without AI, frankly, the legal profession was long overdue for some rethinking around what we traditionally looked at and what was an actual measure of likely success in the future. And so, you know, I think we have to marry the skills we want with what are the predictors you're going to have that? So what are the kind of things that show you have the ability to work well with others to solve to to have patience to think critically i I mean i'd frankly rather find someone who was able to juggle going to school at night and holding down a job and and holding leadership positions where they had to work as a team And, and, you know, that may be a better predictor of having what it takes to be a lawyer in this new environment where you have to juggle and be flexible and anticipate change and, and the like. And not to say that we don't want we want the best and the brightest. I think just what we saw was a proxy for best and brightest might not have always been right.
2: Amen to what Laurie just said. I think law is going through its Moneyball moment, if you might think about it in those terms, where where at Moneyball baseball teams realize that just chasing home runs and RBIs average does not make for a successful baseball team. And they started focusing on other metrics of success. And I think Laurie is exactly right that you want to look for the qualities that actually predict what This is a great lawyer. And if you do that, you start to look for a different kind of person, a different kind of student who's going to to bring a lot more to the table than I think has historically been the case. So I think that is going to change things and already has begun to change things in some fundamental ways. And I hope will bring to us students who might not otherwise have thought about going to law school because they see those opportunities before them when otherwise that wasn't true.
4: I would just add that I would be looking for a healthy amount of confidence. I think that we touched on it earlier where kind of insecurity and anxiety is bred within our systems. And that's coming out now in some of what um, we're hearing about associates within firms. And then the ability to adapt. I think, you know, we've now had this wave of change and we had another wave of change before that. And like, it's just gonna keep happening. And so the people that who can adapt and roll with that, I would want to see evidence of that in hiring new lawyers. And I I would just close by saying that I, I really hope that things
3: change in the way that we evaluate talent coming into the profession. I hate to see so much of a feeling of scarcity in a profession that needs bright minds more than ever to solve big problems and everybody sort of scrambling for the same handful of opportunities when there's such abundance out there of problems to be solved. And really, a lot of people don't like this model on the candidate side or the employer side where you're thinking two to four years in advance of who's going to join your organization in a world with so much chaos. And so I think there are huge opportunities to think differently about recruitment. And I would say if I were advising, and I frequently do, people thinking about law school, This is a moment where I would really interrogate law school programs and find out how that law school is thinking about this moment and what specifically it is doing to support learning in a totally different environment beyond sort of buzzwords about innovation and practice readiness. But like specifically, what are they doing so that those people are really well set up to contribute to what I think is going to be a very exciting time in law?
0: Absolutely. Well, we're at time. Thank you very much for joining. And again, thanks to the panelists. I really appreciate your time and energy and effort that you put into this. It's been wonderful.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.